All right, this morning I am continuing a series that is for the season of Advent, going through the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, and also along with that, looking at some examples that come from the Gospels that show us the anticipation of Jesus, that show us the way that Jesus comes into our life and into our world, that show us the way that we prepare for a Messiah to come to us. So we look at those examples, and and today, looking at the prophet Micah, I'm going to be looking at an example that comes from chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, there's a bit of a shift that takes place here. And that is remarkable for some reason. So if, if you have not been with us the past two weeks, the first three chapters of Micah, well, they were rather gloomy, weren't they? That, that we began the first two weeks of Advent, and, and it maybe the, the words we were reading from Scripture almost felt a bit depressing. How do we go into Advent in this Christmas season with passages that are filled with what looks like so much judgment that Micah brings. But that set the stage for us. It set the stage because in those first three chapters of Micah, what Micah is doing there is he's showing us just how much our world needs a Savior. Just how lost and broken we are as people in this world. And despite all of our own efforts We just have not been able to fix it on our own. That's been what Micah has been about in those first three chapters. Now, in chapter 4, it is remarkably different. Strikingly different. So much so that there are some biblical scholars that wonder, is this even the same author? Uh, did, Did the scholars get this right, or is the book of Micah actually two completely different letters that were just put together by different authors? Some have wondered that because the language in chapter 4 is so different with the corner that's turned here. Because we're not sitting down and reading all of Micah in one sitting, that would be lost on us. So I'm going to read these words that start Micah chapter 4, but but we should not not be lost of the, the fact that this is a dramatic switch in the language, the tone, the message that these words in Micah 4 turn everything of what Micah has said in the first three chapters completely around in a new direction. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to start with some words that come from Micah chapter 4. Here's what he says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, 
and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. And then a few words from the New Testament. Again, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, and this time from Mark. I have to get it in my Bible. Hang on. <laughs> I try to study the passages hard during the week, but sorry, not hard enough to have them completely memorized. <laughs> Mark chapter 1. Beginning at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, that being a reference to Elijah from the Old Testament. And this was his message. After me, comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A new direction, at least in the way that Micah presents this, after three chapters of all of this judgment and destruction that's coming upon the world because of the brokenness and sin around us, now Micah speaks a different word and a new direction. And, and I, I want to spend a few minutes just considering how that shift in message and tone in Micah and how these words that are spoken here beginning chapter 4 give us something of a picture of Advent that we're looking forward to. So let's consider what that new direction looks like. First of all, consider the tone of this, that, that it is shifting away from the past and to the future. In those first three chapters of Micah, it was all looking backwards to things that had already been done to the injustices that had already been committed, to those who had already been hurt, already been destroyed, that the first three chapters look backwards, backwards. But now, Micah's turning around and he's looking forward. 
Now he's looking to the future. Starts it right off in those very first words. In that day, pointing forward about a future time. That Mike is taking us in a direction where he wants us to focus our attention, where we, we remember all the things of the past, but that's not what controls us moving forward anymore. That's important. Sometimes maybe we live that way, don't we? We live in ways where our past, maybe what's been done to us or what we've done ourselves, feels like a ball and chain strapped to our legs. We just can't walk any further. That what's behind us seems to define for us who we are. That what we've done or failed to have done becomes our identity that we carry. And it's hard to look forward when it seems like a past is holding on to us so tightly. So Micah changes the direction here. Now, it's not that consequences are gone. We are broken people. We do commit sins. And sin has consequences. It's not that the consequences are taken away. But what Micah is steering us toward is that the guilt is taken away. That there is a day coming when all of those things in our past that feel like they weigh us down will not hold guilt against us anymore. That God is going to do something new so that we are no longer weighed down by our past. Here's something else that shows up in this passage, that, that it is a moving away from a tearing down and towards a raising up. In fact, if you were to look and see how chapter 3 ends, the very ending of Micah chapter 3 is about Jerusalem being completely leveled, plowed under, that the mountain, Mount Zion, God's holy hill, is going to be completely wiped out. And chapter 4 begins with the exact opposite. That God will establish, raise up his holy mountain. That it's taking on a new direction. That where Micah is pointing us towards a Messiah, he's pointing us to a time when instead of a world that tears down, it will be a world that builds up. Instead of destroying it will be encouraging, helping, restoring. We see something of that in the language here of Micah. Here's another one, that it goes from being separated to gathered. In the first three chapters of Micah, it was all about the way that people are scattered from one another. Now, the immediate context, and I've talked this over the past few weeks. The immediate context of the prophet Micah is that he is living in the land of Judah near Jerusalem during a time when all of the northern territories of Israel had already been conquered by Assyria. That that's already happening and taking place. But the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem still stands. And it would not be until after Micah's lifetime that the Babylonians come and defeat Jerusalem, even though Micah is prophesying that will take place. 
So he's living during a time when people are being taken and scattered and spread apart. Captives and exiles are being moved away to different places. And he talks about that in the first three chapters, how God's people will be scattered and apart from one another. But then, here in chapter 4, he talks about a gathering, coming together again. And not just Israel. That's remarkable in this passage because we also should remember that in the Old Testament, the prophets, that all of these things about God's people, usually the assumption there is, oh, you mean the descendants of Abraham. Those are God's people, the Jewish people. But Micah puts language to this in this passage that spreads beyond just the descendants of Abraham. Look at all the places in those first eight verses of chapter 4 where Micah talks about many nations, all people, everyone will have their own vine and their own fig tree. That the language there spreads out. It's beyond just the Israelite people, beyond just Jerusalem or the tribe of Judah. But now it's many nations across the earth. There's something reminiscent here about going all the way back to Genesis, the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham. A covenant that first shows up in Genesis 12, where God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you and your descendants, and through that, through that blessing that I'm giving to you and your descendants, all nations will be blessed. That God has the intention of overflowing his blessing through his people that all the world may experience that blessing. That the blessing given to Abraham and his descendants is a blessing that is meant to be shared and multiplied and moved on. That many would experience God's blessing. It goes all the way back to that. So Micah is stretching our understanding here of what God is doing throughout history, throughout his people. And speaking of Genesis 12, and speaking of the way that Micah 4 is this dramatic turn, Genesis is that way too. That that story in Genesis, when God first comes to Abraham and makes that first covenant with Abraham to bless all nations through him, that comes right on the heels of another event. The thing that takes place in Genesis right before Abraham is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, that that story where people in their own wickedness try to build this monument to their own greatness. And God scatters them. So in Genesis, we see this pattern already, stretching that view to where even in Genesis, an example of people being scattered and separated, but then in a dramatic way, God shows up and he says, what was scattered, what was separated, I'm going to bring together again. God's Messiah will gather from many nations, many people, and bring them together again. These things show us something of a pattern, 
a pattern that you see in these first eight verses of Micah 4, a pattern that moves from conflict to shalom. Uh, Shalom being that Hebrew word that most often in our English Bibles is translated as peace. And we think of it as peace, but, but I've said this before, that shalom means more than just what we think of as peace. It is more than just an absence of conflict. But shalom means flourishing, thriving. Shalom is that that ideal world in which everything that God created, his entire creation, functions as God created and intended for it to be. When we as people live into everything that God created and intended for us to be in this world, that's shalom. When the world around us exists in ways that are perfectly intended as God created it to be, that's shalom. You know how it is, maybe here in West Michigan, on on one of those perfect summer evenings when maybe you go out to the lake, Lake Michigan, and you see that sunset and There's no humidity, and the mosquitoes are gone, or things like that. And and you just think to yourself, you look at that picture, and you think, this is what the world is supposed to be like. That's shalom. When we see those, those glimpses, those glimpses when we experience the world and think, this is how God meant for it to be, that's shalom. That's the picture that Micah is painting here. That's the idea that Mike is trying to bring across. That God and God's Messiah is bringing a world of shalom, peace, flourishing, thriving, where God's people may be what God created and intended for us to be. In a world that God created and intended for the world. That's what the Messiah brings. And, and Micah gives some language to that, right? That they take their, their swords and turn them into plowshares. Things that were weapons to cut and destroy others now become tools to cultivate, to build, to provide for one another. That things in this world that we had once used to put other people down now become things in this world that we can use to raise one another up. That's the move towards shalom that we see taking place here. And it's scattered throughout time. I think Micah's intentional with this. That it's a prophecy in the Old Testament, and as a prophecy in the Old Testament, it has applications that stretch through time. That Micah, I think, intentionally draws our attention all the way back to Genesis and Abraham. And Micah does that so that he intentionally draws our vision of what's coming further and further out too. Now, the prophets had an immediate audience. Micah had an immediate audience, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, who were, within the next generation, going to be captured and taken away to Babylon. That this was a prophecy that did apply directly to them. They were the audience. That's who Micah was writing to. So he's giving a word of restoration for them, that their Babylonian captivity 
will not remain forever, but God will restore them. But as the prophets will do, so often their prophecy stretches beyond that. And we'll see more examples of this in coming weeks with Micah. That Micah gives prophecy that clearly points us towards God's Messiah coming in Jesus. The incarnate word become flesh, what we celebrate at Christmas. That it's a prophecy that stretches further, to see further within that. And I think Micah does that in ways which still press us even further. Because we live in a time where we celebrate that Jesus has come into the world, that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us, that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit, that Jesus ascended into heaven and has said, I'm going to give you my spirit until I come again. And we still anticipate that fulfillment, don't we? We in God's church still look forward to a time when Jesus will come again. That The anticipation of Advent, the anticipation of Christmas, is an anticipation that, through the prophets, we still hold on to for God to come again, for God to complete what he has started, for that world of shalom to be made perfectly whole again. We still anticipate that too. I think the prophets stretch our view so that we can see that, that we still live in that time of anticipation too. So what does that look like? For us to be people who anticipate God's Messiah. How do we live in Advent as people of anticipation? Whenever I um, have classes with students that move towards profession of faith, Two of the things that we talk about with profession of faith with our students, where we talk about what it means to be a person of faith, I use these two big church words that maybe you've heard, right? Justification and sanctification. But put them in, this, in these phrases then, that when we think about justification, what that really means is we're saying, Jesus is the Savior of my life. Jesus is my Savior. That we anticipate a Messiah who comes from God who saves us when we cannot save ourselves. And this is by grace through faith. Meaning, I can't do anything to make this one happen on my own. I have no bargaining chip to put on the table with God to make God say, and now you have to save me. It is entirely by God's grace. You have been saved by Jesus because God loves you eternally. Nothing can take that away. And it is only because of God's love for you that you're saved. Not anything you bring to God to prove it. Not anything you've done wrong to pull yourself away from it. But only because of what God in his love has done for you. That's justification. That Jesus is our Savior. But then we talk about something else. Not only is Jesus the Savior of my life, but Jesus is also the Lord of my life. 
that in the baptism that John talks about that we read about in Mark chapter 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that God gives to us his spirit so that we may walk in faith with him. That he is now the Lord of my life. That who I am as a person is now changed as I walk with God. And I strive to follow as his disciple. I think it's this part, this part of Jesus being Lord of my life. This is the part that some of this language from Micah 4 really gathers around. What it means for us to live as people who anticipate a Messiah who is the Lord of my life the one that I strive to follow, the one who, because of his gift of the Holy Spirit to me, opens up a way of living where now I can anticipate the shalom, flourishing, thriving of God in this world, that I can see that coming. There was a verse right in the middle of that Micah passage that makes this shift clear to us. It it came in verse 5. Verse 5, which says, you know what? All those other nations, those nations around us, they may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. That is a statement that echoes. Jesus is the Lord of my life. Even though there's a world where I still see the effects of sin and brokenness all around me, that because Jesus is the Lord of my life, I'm going to do what the Holy Spirit prompts in me to take steps along with the shalom of God, to make that something that's a part of who I am as I anticipate God's coming. A couple things that we can pull from this then, recognizing how this works in our lives. Uh, before coming back here to West Michigan, I, I lived in Denver for several years, and Denver's right up against the Rocky Mountains. It's not up in the mountains. It's right up against. So there are places in Denver where you, you are right up against the foothills, and those who live in Denver, that first, that first rise of foothills that you see west of Denver, they call that the hogback that first ridge that you see. And and if you get close enough to that, that's all you see. Just because of the angle, that you're on the ground and you're looking up and all you see is that first ridge, that first line, that first hogback. And if, if you were to hike up on that and get to the top, what you find out when you get there is there's another ridge. And it's even higher than this ridge, but I couldn't see it because of the angle, right? You keep going and you get to that next ridge and you find, wow, There are other mountains out there, taller than this yet. I couldn't see them from where I was because of the angle. That as you get into the Rocky Mountains that way, you discover that as you go from ridge to ridge to ridge, that there's more ridges out there, and they're not shorter, they're taller. There's more mountains. As we read these words from the prophet Micah and and recognize the way that Micah stretches our view, right, of looking backwards to the past, but now also stretching our view into the future that you and I live as people who on our journey of faith are climbing a ridge. And you get to that ridge and you look over and you say, 
there's another ridge. And from where I was before, I could not see what was coming next until I got there. Isn't that true for us as we walk through life? That as we make our way into the future, that we we see a ridge in front of us and we climb that ridge and we don't know what's on the other side yet until we get there. So students in school who are studying and wondering, okay, what comes after school? And do I go to college? Do I get a job? What's next? You've got to climb that ridge and get there because you don't always see from where you are now what's coming next. Or those thinking about family and career and where you're going next. Sometimes you've got to climb the ridge to see what's coming on the other side. For those who are in retirement years and wondering, all right, I've done my work and now what do I do next after I retire and get there? Sometimes you've got to climb that ridge to see what's on the other side. That Micah is pointing for us a picture in which I think we know because that's how life goes for us, right? That's what it's like to live is that we keep walking into the future, not always knowing what God has in store for us over the next ridge. But here's what Micah is telling us. Even though you can't see it, even though you don't always know what the next thing is going to be, that there is something you can anticipate. There is anticipation that holds on to us through that. An anticipation that even though we don't know exactly what it's going to look like when we get there, there are some things we can hold on to. That Jesus, God's Messiah, is my Savior, my Lord. So if you have, if you've never taken that step to say, I want Jesus as my Savior, That's where it begins. If you've never had that opportunity in your life to say, you know what, even though I don't know where those next steps are going to go, I know that I can't do it without Jesus. I know that my life is lost without Jesus. If, If you've never taken that step to say, I need Jesus to save me, start there. Start there. Embrace that. And that can come in a couple of different ways, right? A way in which you say, you know what? I feel like I'm so lost and so broken and so beaten down. I know the only way that my life can turn around to be whole again is with a Savior from God. That's one way. Another way might be to say, you know what? I have tried so long to live the religious life going to church and reading my Bible and doing my devotions and being in a prayer group. I've tried that for so long and it feels like I just can't earn my way to being with God that way. That as well acknowledges it's only because Jesus is our Savior that we start there. This way of anticipating God's Messiah is an anticipation that recognizes I can't do it on my own. I can't take those steps. It starts there. And if you've never done that, make that step. Receive Jesus as Savior. But here's what else we can do to anticipate God's Messiah. 
Join in the Messiah's shalom, peace, flourishing, thriving. That when Micah talks about swords being turned into plowshares, things in our world that once destroyed and leveled, now being an opportunity to build and raise up. This is what the Messiah brings. That's what Micah is telling us about. Join in the Messiah's shalom. Find those opportunities. Anticipate it. Anticipate where those opportunities are going to show up in your life. And it can take all kinds of forms. I think for those of you who are in school, students, I mean, you, maybe you know what it's like or you've experienced that time where you felt like there was this perfect group of friends over there and I'm not a part of it. Right? Where it feels like there are people who are just mean to me. When there's an opportunity to undo that, right? to, to take that sword of being mean or bitter or bullying to one another. Take that sword and make that into a plowshare. Instead of cutting other people down, it's, all right, who can I go sit with at lunch who maybe has no one else to sit with? Or maybe it's just as simple as in class, leaning across and saying a kind word of encouragement to someone who maybe never hears a kind word of encouragement. There are opportunities that we can anticipate to join in the Messiah's shalom, building up, thriving, flourishing. For those of you who work, you have opportunities in your workplace to do this. Opportunities to say, it's not about me being the top dog here, but what can I do to help those around me be the best that they can be? as God created them to be, to join in the Messiah's shalom. For those of you in retirement years who spend time maybe connecting with others, meeting for coffee, caring for grandkids, whatever that looks like for you, you have opportunities to join in the Messiah's shalom. Saying, what, what is it that I do have that I can offer that helps other people, that builds up instead of tears down, that as people who anticipate the Messiah, that what we are anticipating is his shalom. And there are glimpses of that shalom in our world even now. Opportunities even now to be a part of God's shalom in that way. So as people who await Christmas, during this time of Advent. Let's be people who anticipate a Messiah who brings salvation and a Messiah who brings shalom. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the reminder here that you are the God who comes to save a world that could not save itself. And that includes every single one of us. And you are also a God who's come to restore what's been broken to bring your shalom back again. So God, if there are those here today who have maybe never taken that step to receive you as Savior, 
May you open hearts here today for that to happen, to be received by you. And God, where there are opportunities in front of every single one of us to take what may be in our world a sword that cuts down and to instead take that and make that a plowshare that builds others up. Show us what that is that we may anticipate joining you on that. God, we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.